Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. On today's episode, you'll be meeting 2018 Stellar Prize shortlistee Claire G. Coleman. Claire is a Noongar woman, and we'll be discovering her incredible debut, Terra Nullius. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, sitting on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. We explore books, writing, and literary culture, bringing you closer to the great works of fiction and writing coming out of Australia. And Great Conversations brings you more of these discussions to help you discover the best Australian writing. Terra Nullius takes us to a kind of fictional future history of Australia. We're on the run with Jackie, a native stolen from his family and escaped from the convent school, where he's treated a little better than a slave. The story careers between the natives and the oppressive settlers who would subjugate and perhaps ultimately wipe the natives out. Right now, I am joined in the studio by Claire G. Coleman. Claire is a Noongar woman from Western Australia. She's in Sydney for the Sydney Writers' Festival, where she has been discussing her debut novel, Terra Nullius. Released in 2017, Terra Nullius has been featuring heavily on awards lists, most recently being shortlisted for the 2018 Stellar Prize. Welcome to Final Draft. Welcome to 2SER, Claire. Hi, how are you? I'm... I'm all the better for having you here. I, we talked off air. I'm super excited. Terra Nullius has blown me away. It is a kind of fictional future history of Australia. We're on the run with Jackie, a native stolen from his family and escaped from the convent school where he's treated little better than a slave. On Jackie's trail is Trooper Rowan, famed and feared for his violent temper and none too happy to be setting off into the harsh Australian interior. Amongst the desert landscape, two groups orbit. Esperance and her grandfather lead a group of survivors trying to remain one step ahead of settler violence and oppression. And meanwhile, the fugitive Johnny Starr is also on the run. A settler and former trooper, he has turned on his people and seeks absolution for his crimes. As Jackie remains on the run, he moves closer to these groups and grows in legend. He becomes mythological and inspiring to other natives to throw off their chains. That is, like, I, I love that I get to say that about this book. That's how excited I felt about it. We discussed off-air that there's so much about Terra Nullius that we're, we're kind of, we can't talk about without giving away spoilers, and we're definitely not going to do that, are we? No, we're not going to do spoilers, because <laughs> I, I don't want to... Um, it's a sort of book where a spoiler could really, really spoil it for, for the reader. I think um, I, it's, a, it's about page 120, 130, and... The book is an amazing read up until that point, and then it just sort of takes it up a gear. Uh, it's it's my my it's the mind blown moment that I've had in my reading, like the biggest one for a while. But look, without revealing too much, what can you tell me about your inspiration to ter- tell Terranellius in the way that you have? Well, I was travelling around Australia, and I returned to my ancestral country. And as I travelled, I was attempting to find a way to invoke empathy for the Aboriginal people in the minds of, of Whitefella. Because a lot of, I hear, I kept hearing stories about, oh, the um, colonisation of Australia was so long ago and stories like that and people not really feeling it like I thought they should. So I was trying to think, work out a way to make people understand a bit better. And then I was in a little museum in a small town and where my, the town my grandfather was born and they had a massive amount of foals on my family, which I didn't exist. So, And so I was talking to the museum staff about this, about my family being from there, and they found out who I was, and 
It turns out my family were an incredibly important family in the area, but that history was largely ignored. And then they invited me to a, a an opening ceremony for a memorial to the massacre that occurred out just outside of town. When I was there, I heard the story of the massacre, and for some reason, by some collision of, of weird thoughts, I had a, a thought collision in my brain, and the story appeared in one piece, complete. Wow. wow. So we followed the character of Jackie, and he becomes known as Jackie Jeramungup as he flees from the settlers towards a home he barely remembers. He takes, takes as sort of the name is given to him of the town that he is trying to get to. Now, whilst on the run, Jackie takes this enormous risk and, and sacrifice for Johnny Starr, who's a settler and a fugitive. He, he's been basically, he believes that this is not a man who would do the same for him. Yes. Johnny, in turn, risks himself and, uh, for Jackie, and despite the gulf of their life and experience that exists between them. So what essential qualities, and humanity is a theme that you, you riff on in the discussion, what essential qualities were you trying to explore here? Well, I was trying to explore how, I suppose you could say, humanity has no colour. Um, all humans are human, and I suppose you could say human is as human does. It's our behaviours, our activities that make somebody human or humane. So in in that way, when the um, invasion of Australia, people call colonisation of Australia, happened, Aboriginal people were considered not human. But if you look at the behaviour, Aboriginal people who led white people to water, led white people's animals to pasture, were the ones acting humane, were considered not human. So that there was that kind of concept of what is human or humane behaviour and why is it that people who are not considered human are um, sometimes more likely to act it? You've reminded me of something that, that really um, it, it occupied my thoughts as I read and that was this idea, and I remember in your afterword you talk about uh, Jared Diamond's guns, germs and steel, this idea of the way invaders, colonisers came to Australia and, and purely by, by weight of both the technology, the, the aggressive force that they brought and the passive force in terms of disease, they were able to overthrow people. And I kept thinking, you're, you're basically talking about how to a sufficiently aggressive people, peace looks primitive. They, they come in and they, they basically say, well, this, here's a peaceful group of people. They've, they've never needed to develop aggressive technology yeah. and that looks primitive to us. That... It, that that thought alone, you've boggled me. Well, if you think about it, even the concept of ancient Rome, they had the, the phrase Pax Romanus, the, mm. the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome was because they'd killed everybody. Mm. Um, the peace of Rome was being invaded and colonised and completely dominated by another culture. So if you think about it that way, yes, to, to warlike cultures, um, peace is, is achieved through force. Mm. But not every culture has done that. We live in a world where so much is based around the development of the military-industrial complex since the Second World War predominantly. Um, you don't have to go far. You can go to the supermarket and you will find foods that are probably not that great for us, but they've been developed and ubiquitous because they were there to feed the troops and suddenly we're mm. going to buy them Hot Pockets and the like. Can we, can we escape that when we've just come, we've come to rely on machines of warfare so much? Well, I think if, if instead a government, anything the government spends a lot of money on develops a lot of new technologies. Mm. For example, the space race. Mm. A lot of the technologies that are now military technologies actually had their start in the space race. And, and things that we use every day, I think of as a space race, well, for example, Teflon. Mm. Teflon was used for fry pans. It was invented as a non-stick coating for the outside of spacecraft mm. so that to make the space, like, reduce the friction. 
There's a classic example. So you think about if the government spent enough money on anything, if the government spent a lot of money on peace, like they do on war, mm. there'd probably be technologies of peace that would come out of that. I feel like it just needs, we need to change our whole mindset, though. It's, I think we it's do. It's incredible. Um, now, the land features prominently in your writing. When a mysterious stranger emerges from the desert, walking into Esperance's encampment, she observes that the country chooses who can live here because the settlers, really, they can't live. They, mm. they are unable to adapt. How does Australia, the land itself, live and expand in the narrative of Terra Nullius? Well, I, never, I didn't use any specific place as an actual place. The only one I actually used as a real place, I used two. I used Perth and Jeromunga. Jeromunga is a real place. And, but, and the funny thing about Jeromunga is it was a place where there was divided up as war estates. Right. And, but, the war, but before that, it was Aboriginal land. So that was, well, that's the reason I used Jeromunga. It's also on my ancestral country, or really close. Uh, but Australia, I used Australia as a as an impressionistic character. In a way, the landscape is defined as a, by the character's point of view of who is interacting with that landscape at the time. The landscape changes according to who is observing it, which it always does. But I was very careful to show things about somebody's point of view or mood based on how, show it by how they're reacting to the landscape at that time. Mm. And I'm struck myself by the difference I wrote in how Jackie responds to the landscape and how Johnny Starr does. They're friends, but they completely see the landscape as a different thing. It's almost like they're looking at a different place, but often it's the same. Mm. Now, you're in Sydney for the Writers' Festival, and in one of your festival talks, you address the nature of evil mm. and fictional villains both within the narrative of Terranullius and in the history of Australia since invasion, we can see abhorrent acts. The work of people, though, who believed that they were doing good. That was what they told themselves. How does fiction help us clarify our notions of good and evil and, I guess, give us the opportunity to seek and find perspective that we perhaps can't get in our daily lives? Well, what I, what I observed from fiction, and I observed it in writing and in reading about writing, and I looked at other people's written works and, and I thought about evil because I was trying to un understand my characters and the motivations of writing Terranolius. And what I worked out is that I cannot think of a single time in history where, where, in, where evil has been done by somebody who actually thought they were doing evil. Mm. I couldn't think of a single case. And I still can't. People mention things. They go, well, what about this person? They did this whole thing. It's like, yeah, but they weren't doing evil. They were doing what they had to do to survive or they were... Um, having a, a mental storm and they just had a complete no idea of what was right and wrong at that time but nobody goes, sets out to do evil nobody does I, I still I believe that firmly that not a single person out there sets out to do evil at least that's not what they tell themselves so I think um, and, until we to interrogate the history of Australia we need to think about what were people's motivations mm. in what they were doing like, why, why did people come here why do they steal children? Why did they attempt to attempt genocide? You've got to, we've got to understand all these things. We're not going to go anywhere. We turn to terms like uh, villainy, but also I think evil to a, to a greater extent to help us. Well, we, we, we almost throw them around as, as barbs when we see something that we can't understand, something horrible happening. Are they useful terms, though? Because it occurs to me that talking about evil, talking about villainy is a, is a way of othering that someone can do to separate themselves from something that they don't want to be associated with. Is it useful to talk about evil and villainy when I, I think we can see in Terra Nullius that 
people as in, in a dominant position are capable of that and they'll just tell themselves it's good. Well, the thing about evil and villainy is everybody is capable of evil acts. Mm. Everyone is capable at any moment of being the villain. Uh, and it doesn't seem... I don't think... I said in my lecture today, my conclusion is evil is what we do, not who we are. Mm. And so I don't think a villain is someone who does evil, but they're not they're not defined by their evil. Now, but that means that when you look at, for example, the evils of the Stolman generation, that was not evil people doing horrible things. That was a society as a whole either being being complicit in evil by either actively in, um, being involved or ignoring that it was going on. So if you think the Stolman generation was not a few evil people, it was an entire evil entire system that was criminal and was evil, but the people within that system were not. Mm. So when, when you think of it that way, it gets a little bit muddier, but also in a way it clarifies, you know, well, if they're not evil, why did they do it? And then you can begin to interrogate racism, for example, and why it exists. Is, is it because of evil? No. It's because of racism. And racism stands alone. It's not an evil thing. It's just a, a wrong thing. And so we have... And I guess what I wanted to interrogate was this idea that if we start to think of that as perhaps being evil acts from people in the past, we then separate ourselves and we get, you know, these absolutely clangor horrid moments like on sunrise a week or two ago when uh, knowing that, you know, Aboriginal children are still being taken from their parents, we had an all-white panel discussing this idea that it was being done for someone's good and and they were somehow separate from the evil acts. That's a classic, classic great example, isn't it? But then on the other hand... If we understand that good people do evil things, then maybe we can be on the lookout for that. And when someone, when we, when any individual is about to do something bad, you can say to them, "That's wrong" or "That's an evil act," without necessarily accusing them of being evil. Because if you accuse a person of being evil, you're not going to you're not going to have impact on them. They're not going to you're not going to change their behaviour by calling them evil. They go, "Well, I'm just a bad person. I'm an evil person. It doesn't matter." Or they're going to switch off and go, "I'm not evil." Therefore, what I'm doing is okay. Mm. But if you say you're a good person, but you're doing something vile, then they, then maybe they'll go, oh, maybe that's true. Mm. And so much comes to the way we're indoctrinated by administrations. Late in the book, you note, and I've forgotten who, um, whose words I'm taking from your in the book, but that stealing something to eat that's a crime that could get me thrown in jail. Stealing everything that's just good government. Now that's. That's laugh out loud funny. That is a that is a beautiful quip, but it it's also a horrible indictment on <laughs> on the way we live. Should we be focusing attention on the way governments mould us? I think we should. Yeah. I actually um um I can't. I think I, I I got that concept about the difference between stealing something small and stealing something big um, from from Terry Pratchett, one of my favourite authors, who has a character called Nobby Nobs, and Nobby Nobs is a small time criminal. Yeah. And someone else said of Nobby Nobs that his problem is he thinks too small. He steals a cigarette or all the sugar. If he's stolen in a country, he'd be a nobleman. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it comes. That, that that's where I got the idea from. But I think it it is the government indoctrinated us into thinking that the big crimes are not crimes mm. and the little crimes are crimes. Uh, I just had a great radio moment where I've just I've knocked I knocked my headphones out because I got so excited at you mentioning Terry Pratchett. I love Terry Pratchett. Uh, we could talk Terry Pratchett all day. We so could. Let's, <laughs> let's not go down that. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, now, the um, we haven't talked a lot about the convent from which Jackie escapes. 
but there is one. I think one of your most vivid characters, most evil characters, if we can use that, um, is Mother Superior Bagra, and she has uh, she's been informed on, and someone has been sent out from uh, sent out from home, and Grark has arrived, and his assessment of the colony. I found it, it almost leaves, it left me with the implication that the settlers are in fact worse than their brethren at home. He thought, he seemed to be under the impression that uh, back on their home, back back at home, people did not act this way and that somehow they'd almost been corrupted. Do you think there's something about the act of invasion and colonisation that debases the coloniser? I mean, you had me thinking of things like the Stanford Prison Experiment, or is yes. that an excuse? I don't I don't know if, if drawing attention to something make, is excusing it at all. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, Stanford Prison Experiment is interesting, and so is um, the statement by Gandhi that... Um, responding with horror and pain to a torturer tortures your torturer. Mm. The uh, the fear of you of the tortured tortures the torturer, okay. makes them realize what they've done. So a true pacifist re- does not re- respond to mm. torture, which is of course almost impossible. But there's, let's not go there. But I think well the, the the idea that it was worse in the colonies than at home was based on historical fact because when. Uh, Australia was invaded. They were told not to take the land without buying it off the of the Aboriginal people when the British came in. Okay. They were told no slavery is allowed in the in the colonies because slavery had been outlawed in Britain. We had slavery here even though it had been outlawed in Britain. Mm. They were told that no land that the Crown could take was taking sovereignty over the country, <clears throat> but individual landholdings by by native people were to be respected. So there were all these instructions from London that were being completely ignored by the, by the colonising forces. In South Australia, by the, the rules of South Australia, when South Australia was... The letters patent to form South Australia stated that, no, that the land remains under the sovereign ownership of the native people, and yet that was completely ignored. Mm-hmm. So our own laws ignore the fact that, that basically people ignore what they were told in, by the British Empire. Yeah. I wonder, though, and in, not in any way seeking to excuse anyone, but this idea that somehow uh, the, the act of invasion and colonisers debases and that people at home are somehow better. The people, the people that had sent the invaders, and I'm thinking here both in Terra Nullius, but also at the historical fact of the invasion of Australia, were still going to try and institute forms of government. They were going to institute legal systems that would wholesale ignore existing forms of cooperation between nations and legal systems that existed. The The process was, was faster, it was slow, but it, it seems like at home they were going to do this anyway, whether they acknowledged Absolutely. it or not. Absolutely. But there's, there's, I suppose, bad things and really bad things. Mm. Certainly, mm. When, when people came here in, in the real world and when the invasion happened in Terranolius, the idea was that the people being colonised were savages who had no form of government and there was that, again that thing they believed that by adding um, Westminster style government to this continent they were helping the native people and we've come full circle to this discussion that we were having earlier yeah let's let's try and leave on I'm, I'm going to I guess pun here a little bit on a note of hope where you note at one point Esperance's name evokes that idea of hope, hope yes. uh, and also Jackie because as he progresses he simply by surviving becomes this rallying point for natives mm-hmm. across the the story of Terra Nullius. 
Um, and I, I wondered how difficult it was for you to move through the story with both of these characters, knowing the difficulty you were going to put them through. It's always, I think... Every author has a has a difficulty with the fact they're going to be really mean to the characters. Mm. You love your characters, you're going to hurt them. Um, but they had their job in mm. the narrative. They had their they they had something to do. Mm. Uh, Jackie had his job. Esmond had her job. And um, I when I was, when I wrote it, I knew the beginning, I knew the middle, I knew the end, and the rest of it was um, improvised as I wrote. And it was it was complete pantsing. See the pants, <laughs> the entire thing. There were there were obviously historical parallels though to the uh, to the role that Jackie, uh, the role of hope that Jackie inspires in yes. people, and I, I guess also the role that Esperance plays in her emergence in the narrative. Um, do you, would you like to talk about them at all? Well, Jackie. Actually, the funny thing about Jackie was he was written from the very beginning as the notion of the. Well, it combines two things. One is the the classic escaping native child uh, trope from uh, from his from historical fiction. The idea of an Aboriginal kid basically bolting and running for it, and how far they get. Like there's Jimmy Governor from the Chandler Jim Blacksmith. There's um, Rapperpoo Fence. Follow that Fence with the those three girls basically run for it, and that's that um, his. He basically is the uh, Jackie is the thread that holds the whole story together. Mm. With if I removed Jackie, that'd just fall apart. Uh, and who was he was the first character I wrote, and Esperance was the second character I wrote. Interestingly, they were the, they were the first two characters in the, in the narrative. They, in a way, um, are the notion of how different it is to grow up with your culture and grow up without it, because Esperance grew up un modified by the invasion except having to escape and Jackie grew up having been stolen and re-educated in by the by the uh, settlers so they kind of they have different ideas that's and the name Jackie is actually was was used because there was a time when by in, in Australian history when uh if you didn't know when someone didn't know in the name of an Aboriginal servant they just shout Jackie come here they just call them Jackie. Wow. So the name Jackie was like, you know, just scream Jackie and someone would come running. So it's like this idea of, so that made him the everyman. Because it could be any servant from the time. And Esmond's, yeah, the, the name means hope. It's also a town in WA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you mentioned towns, the actual towns, I was about to jump in. Esperance is also a town that you reference, I guess, directly yes, I through. Because, well, um, basically... Uh, in in a way, Esperance and Jeremungup actually bracket my ancestral country. Esperance is the it's pretty much the um, the easternmost point, and Jeremungup is inland of the westernmost point. So if you think, think about that, this actually defines the landscape as well. Wow. I have so much I want to talk about. Um, I, am spe- <laughs> <laughs> I am speaking with Claire G. Coleman. We are discussing her book, Terra Nullius. This has been an absolutely fantastic chat, uh, Claire. I mean, I'm glad we didn't go down the Terry Pratchett wormhole because... <laughs> that's, a, that's a deep wormhole. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a 24-hour marathon final draft. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Claire G. Coleman. Claire is a Noongar woman and her debut novel is Terra Nullius. It's out now through Hachette. 
We keep it spoiler-free, Claire and I, but can I recommend just personally go out and get a copy because this is a spectacular and surprising book. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to hear more great conversations from Final Draft, just hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. It's NADOC week if you are listening in real time, and we are giving subscribers a special treat featuring amazing conversations from Aboriginal authors such as Alexis Wright, Kim Scott, and Claire G. Coleman. Subscribe and get these stories delivered straight to your phone every day. And if you want to keep up with the latest books, writing, and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, just look for Final Draft 2SER, and on 107.3 FM in Sydney every Saturday morning. My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. See you then.